So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal well, of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so, with the right innovation. Uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty energy. Solar has gained 17 times the rate of our economy. There are 2.6 million jobs in our country in clean energy. The world's biggest energy agency believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more. We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Hi, and welcome to this edition of Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Jeff McMahon. Today, we're giving you the chance to listen in on an event Epic hosted recently that provided an insider's look into the making of the Energy Department's Grid Reliability Report. That's the report that led to Energy Secretary Rick Perry's proposal to subsidize the coal and nuclear industries. Epic welcomed a co-author of the report, Allison Silverstein, a former associate director for DOE's Office of Energy Policy and Systems Analysis, Greg Gershuni, now at the Aspen Institute, and Epic's Mark Templeton. He's an associate clinical professor of law and director of the Abrams Environmental Law Clinic at the University of Chicago Law School. They discuss the making of the report and possible impacts to the future of the grid. EPIC's executive director, Sam Ori, moderated the conversation. We thank the Harris Energy and Environmental Association and the Aspen Institute for their partnership in hosting this enticing conversation. Let's listen to a segment of their discussion. Welcome to all of you, and, and thanks for being here with us. Uh, we're, we, we appreciate it greatly. I thought it might be useful to just kind of take a step back and start with uh, start at kind of a higher level and maybe a little bit more of a framing uh, conversation about some of the big trends and changes that have occurred in the grid uh, over the last 15 years. Um, technology changes, de declining technology costs, um, the advent of uh, the shale gas revolution and the advent of cheap natural gas on the grid, um, markets, um, a whole variety of regulatory uh, and policy changes. Uh, I guess, so two, two, two things. One, I think just to kind of summarize what, how all that uh, has, has and hasn't affected the actual grid, right? So uh, what have we seen? We've seen from 2005 to today, coal generation fall from 50, 55, 53% of, of net electricity generation uh, in the U.S. down to the high 30s now. Uh, we've seen a, a concurrent increase in gas generation um, by 15 or 16 percentage points up to the low 30s, uh, an increase in renewable generation. And so the grid, the actual, the way that we get power has changed a little bit over the last uh, 10 or 15 years. Uh, at the federal level, there's been a host of other, uh, of other actions that, that uh, did impact the grid, I think, and some that were uh, poised to potentially impact the grid, but ultimately uh, have not, you know, like gone into not gone into action like the clean power plan. But um, but maybe uh, Greg, if, uh, there's been a few, uh, I think, regulatory changes as well. 
Sure. So um, in 2013, uh, and this was when I was moving from the White House to the Department of Energy, uh, President Obama put out the President's Climate Action Plan, which was a suite of policy actions um, aimed to reduce carbon emissions in the United States. Um, the, the kind of the, the jewel in the crown of this was the Clean Power Plan, which the EPA put out, um, I guess this was August of 15, the final rule was put out, uh, and would have lowered emissions in the U.S. about 32 to 33 percent by 2030. And so what it basically called for was, this is the Clean Air Act 111B and 111D. Um, it called for states to put together plans that would lower emissions by a certain amount. And each state had a specific goal. Some states had um, larger goals, some states had smaller goals, but to use all available resources to do that. And so once the goal was assigned, they could do anything they wanted to comply with the rule. Um, but they just had to meet those, uh, those emissions by 2030. Uh, and it would have gone into effect in 2022. Um, in the new administration, they've, uh, they've repealed that rule, or at least they're in the process of doing that. Um, but states, are, uh, states have kind of started down that road, and utilities have started down that road. And um, I think that a lot of utilities and a lot of states are still going to continue to go down that road. Um, on the, on the other side of this, and so when we talk about climate change and decarbonization, I know this is kind of sort of outside the scope of this, so we're focused on electricity, but the transportation sector is now the biggest source of carbon uh, emissions in the United States. And so the CAFE standards that EPA puts out um, are also now being re, uh, rediscussed. The midterm evaluation of that is happening. California is going to play a very large role in determining whether or not um, this, the more stringent standards in the mid-20s are going to stand. Uh, and so I think that's, um, those are kind of the big things that, that were. Okay. And, and uh, so the, aside from just, I guess, the climate stuff, there's also been some pollution regulations yeah. uh, designed to deal with uh, NOx and SOx and those kinds of things. that have, Merc and Mercury. And Mercury, right. right. Um, I, mean, I think I think you know there's certainly a debate, and you see people on different sides. Is, Whether, it, is it driven by yeah. market forces? Is it driven by regulation? Right. I, you know, I, I think you, you can almost look plant by plant at some of, at some of this. But I think, in a sense, that some of the environmental regulation, you know, if some of these plants were kind of already out, old and out of the money, or close to being out of the right. money anyway, and then you're looking at okay, do you want to put in the necessary controls to deal with these environmental pieces? That could have been the tipping point. And I think we're going to talk more about this in just two minutes because the study, I think, had something to say about that uh, as well. But before uh, we get to that, I guess the one other thing uh, that I wanted to ask about is, in, as we talked about all the changes in the grid, um, I think there have been some benefits, but there's also been you know, some challenges that as the grid has, has uh, evolved that I think uh, everyone agrees that there are things that we need to consider in terms of um, potentially the future of the grid. And uh, I wondered if, uh, if, if Allison, if you want to talk a little bit about what, you know, what are some of the big issues that have cropped up, I think, setting aside anything, the narrower uh, set of issues that I think uh, the, the study was, was designed to address. I mean, even before the study had, was commissioned, FERC had already kind of kicked off this process to talk about capacity markets and some of those kinds of things. So, uh, and, you, and you also brought up transmission, and I think we've seen some real challenges with transmission. So just at a high level, what are some of the challenges that, that the changes in the grid have brought well, about? Um, I'll tell you what. I don't know that they're all challenges, but I'll tell you what the major topics of whining are. 
the the first is if you're a, an elect an, an integrated utility you want to whine about the potential for competition and the potential for stranded assets. You have spent a lot of your ratepayers' money by God on big expensive capital for generation and or transmission and or distribution that is sized to do specific things and to deliver power in certain directions to specific loads. And if those loads disappear or if those generators disappear, um, you, have, you are at risk for stranded assets. And that means that you don't get all of the capital back potentially that you spent, or you don't get all of the, um, you don't make a profit. Or you, the, if your sales drop, as is happening in California due to um, community aggregation, this is all, all, of these, and all of these customers that you, were your captives that you could sell to then all of a sudden they might not buy from you and, and you run the risk of not being paid back for all the money that you've spent on them. So stranded assets is a big issue, whether it's transmission or generation or, um, or distribution. One of the other thing, what the, so, so stranded assets not getting repayment. Competition generally. If you own generators, you don't want competition from um, independent producers. If you own generators, you don't want competition from energy efficiency or from PV on rooftops or from, um, and if you own coal or nuclear plants, you don't want competition from cheaper, faster gas or nuclear. If you, um, these, are, these are not, you, you remember the, the line from Roger Rabbit from, from from, from Jessica who says, I'm not bad, I'm just drawn that way. This is, this, is, this is who they are, this is what they're designed to and planned and drawn to care about. This is the rules that they live by and what have made them successful. And it is not easy to be an adult and have to change. Let's just get right clear on that now. Whether it's a, as a person or as a company or as a, whatever. It's just change is hard and figuring out where and how to change effectively is hard. So, so there's that. Then there is um, retail competition, which is um, I had this very nice, happy set of captive customers, and now other people can come in with different model, business models and shark them away from me. I think about 20 states in the country have some form of retail competition. Texas is broadly thought to be one of the most effective of those where you can offer any kind of, all kinds of, of alternate plans and the wires companies, the, the utilities become effectively a wires company. That, and so you have to design um, a whole alternate set of rates to keep wires companies whole. Competition from energy efficiency. And um, because we used to have electricity demand growing consistently with GDP. And that has decoupled since about 2008. But um, it went down in California much before that, but in 2008 with the recession, essentially stomped on electric growth and, and then the magic of LEDs and the accumulated decades of energy efficiency for appliances and buildings before then finally kicked in. So now we've had electric demand be almost entirely flat everywhere but Texas. Um, since 2008 and GDP's kept growing up, going up. So, so those are all the things that you are going to be angsty about. 
apart from reliability and resiliency. And then there, there are the what happens in the next emergency, what happens um, if this price goes down versus that price goes down, how do I deal with the new regulation, how do I deal with um, the whole change in intelligence and the security risks around cyber or, or solar flares and geomagnetic disturbances. If you are an electric industry executive, you do not sleep well at night. There are so many things that you should be worrying about, including new business models. Well, could, could I just add, but yes. that's partly, I mean, isn't that partly because you are still thought of as the provider of last resort? And that you get, and I know we're talking about innovation here, but you know, you're going to get raked before the State Public Service Commission and the politicians are going to blast you. So not only are you, are you, you know, you've got the, the legacy of that, but there is some, still some real current incentives to make them worry about those things. The, the, the job of electric, running an electric company used to be like watching football. You know, there's just 10 minutes of excitement, but most of it is just hours and hours. It's just dull as can be, and it's business as usual, and it's I, no big deal. I don't know if everybody deal. would agree with that characterization. <laughs> Maybe golf. That's why there's NFL red now, so you can just get to the excitement. Anyway, I take your. I, I think I understand your point. And, but so, so the people who went into who went into running utilities were the Eagle Scouts. You know, it's you're ready for anything. You've got all the details handled, and it's just grind it out. Not a big deal. Plan for the worst and avoid risk. There's a way lot a lot more worse and a lot more risk and a lot more ways that it can go south on you. So uh, I guess, and I would just add one thing to that, to, to that uh, list that you guys kind of ran through, which I think is great, um, which is the, it seems to me that there's a, there's a emerging kind of conversation, I guess, or focus on the layers of state policies in markets, and that these layers of state policies are in some cases creating uh, some very unusual market outcomes where you have negative pricing uh, and some of these kinds of things that are affecting generators um, in markets. And there, I think, has been some very legitimate question about well, what does that mean uh, for especially baseload power plants and um, how do we value capacity and some of those kinds of questions. Uh, and then kind of t taking a step back, I guess, there's, there was during the campaign, uh, and this will kind of lead us into the study. There was a there was a whole series of questions around, um, you know, I think coal, uh, the previous administration's policy on coal, and even if you take set aside the high level rhetoric about the war on coal and coal mining and coal jobs, there was kind of also a, a series of of uh, conversations about um, the reliability of the grid and what what was happening uh, as to the grid as a result of the previous administration's policies around the clean power plant and some of that kind of stuff. Um, and so fast forward to uh, early 2017, Secretary Perry was confirmed in March, and a month later, roughly in April, issued this memorandum uh, commissioning a study on electricity markets and reliability. Uh, and I, you know, I made just a couple of like little underlines and notes on his uh, on the actual original memo. And you know, in it, he says a baseload power is necessary to a well-functioning electric grid. Um, and that over the past few years, grid experts have expressed concerns about erosion of critical baseload resources. Uh, still others have highlighted the diminishing diversity of our nation's electric generation mix uh, and what that could mean for baseload uh, base power and also grid resilience. 
and that this has resulted in part from regulatory burdens introduced by the previous administration's policies. Um, yeah, he mentions the, the market distorting effects of subsidies. And so uh, with that letter commissioned this study, and which you, which Allison, uh, which you led the writing of. So uh, I guess, tell us what, what did the study find just at a high level? What were some of the key findings about those kinds of issues? Let me draw, a, let me clarify what my role is because it's important to understand the difference between what the study found and what the study said. <laughs> well, the study found what DOE said. That's, that's a very there lawyerly response. <laughs> I've been practicing this. Welcome to my 15 minutes of fame. Um, the, I, was brought, I was called up in um, mid-May, yes, over five weeks into a 60-day study, and, and asked to if I would consider coming to DOE to um, lead research and writing of the study. And after I finished laughing, I agreed to listen to the pitch and, and ended up saying yes, even though they asked me to be embedded at DOE for the process. And I said, do you think we'll be able to get an extension past the first 60 days? That, and, and they said, probably. So I, I showed up and I said, we do this on my terms. And um, you don't know me, but my terms weren't, weren't particularly pleasant, and I'm not a very nice person. So, so, so. Well, given your remarks about football, I don't know. You don't doubt that at all. So, but, um, so the, the, what I did was essentially rip up their original outline that they had put together for what to do. Rick Perry does not know me, and I can guarantee you he doesn't want to at this point. Um, but the guys at DOE at the staff level did know me because we'd worked together on all these other studies. And they figured I was one of the only people who could stare down all of the DOE staffers who wanted to explain what the answer is. And, and what I would tell them, and that I could put together a coherent story. So I essentially became the, the person who organized the research. And I sent these little squads of analysts, probably some of whom used to work for him, off to, to and said, get me everything you can on this, find me everything on that. I had some fabulous people at EIA running numbers for me and putting together graphics. And um, what and and although the Perry memo had framed this as the sky started falling in 2011, I said this really needs to go back to 2000 or 2002 because of so many pivotal changes in the industry. And that was probably one of the most significant things that I did that turned out to make the difference of night and day in terms of answering the questions. EIA had good data back to 2002 that let us cover the impacts of electric competition, the drop in natural gas prices, the flattening of demand, the growth of renewables and the growth of gas generation, and oh, by the way, all the regulations that affected the, the coal and nuclear generation. Um, we didn't mention explicitly a lot of the nuclear issues were exacerbated, exacerbated by the EPA's waters of the US regulations, which caused um, increased cooling costs. We didn't even, so, so, I did all of this research and writing, and um, I was listed as the co-author. What I wrote was, or, or you called me the co-author. I'm actually, I was the, the guy who did all the writing, and then um, <laughs> I left in, and, but what I wrote was the guts of the technical study. 
And then I left town on, just on July, my last day at DOE was July 7. I left town on the 8th, and then DOE kept it for another seven weeks, and I had no idea what would happen to it. When it came out, DOE had written the policy recommendations. I had actually organized a, um, a process for let's develop everything that isn't just batshit crazy as a potential policy recommendation. That might have been part of what was leaked in the June 23rd version. Um, and what I wanted to do was have them be open-minded. And then, um, so DOE took ownership of the policy recommendations. They wrote the summary of findings, which was kind of related to the body of the technical study. And they wrote the cover letter, which was kind of related. It used words like baseload and reliability. And, and they... And, and what DOE mostly did was pretty up the graphics and mush up some of the language in the technical study. So what the study, the technical study, findings that you should conclude from what the, <laughs> include the following. The primary causes of coal and nuclear retirements were wholesale competition works. It did exactly what it was supposed to. It shut down inefficient plants. It shut down unneeded stuff. It made it much clearer that you don't piss away good money after bad. If prices are going to keep falling and you're not in the game, get out early. With one exception that we'll get to in a minute. Um, the flattening of demand makes it impossible f to keep building on the come. Although if you're a gas plant owner and you have a Harvard finance degree, you don't seem to grasp that oversupply is a challenge for you personally because you always think you're smarter than all those other jackasses out there and your plant's going to be cheaper. Turns out that's not the case. But um, so, so there's a lot of finance guys getting their clocks cleaned in the gas market still. Um, but overall, um, what this has done has been a very orderly transition in terms of the cheaper stuff is winning and the faster stuff is winning, which is the way it ought to work. Um, gas prices fell hugely by a third after 2008, 2009, which is when people started actually discovering that the whole shale thing wasn't just sort of some anomaly, that shale was real and cheap gas was, was inescapable. And what that meant was a complete sort of transition of permanent pushing down real prices of, of generation. Um, and the last thing was competition, demand, gas prices. Reliability. Thank you. Well. Regulation. No. <laughs> there, were, there were four. I'll get back to them. Here's what they weren't. Renewables made life worse for classic generators. Oh, one of the most important findings, baseload is not a kind of plan. It's a function. There's nothing special about coal and nuclear. Coal and nuclear have the problems. Oh, I know what it was. The most important thing, the coal and nuclear plants that retired were old, really old, and really inefficient. And um, they had earned their AARP cards. And it was time for them to get off the playing field and go enjoy a nice afterlife somewhere. <laughs> So renewables did not, a whole lot of these plants retired well before renewables got big. 
What renewables have done is make the grid significantly faster, in combination, by the way, with IT and communications, so that, and the ability of customers to manage their loads better, so that we now have a much faster moving grid, and coal and nuke can't move that fast. And in fact, coal plants, most of them are middle-aged at best today, and they just, um, their cost, operating costs and maintenance costs and heat rates get much higher across the board the more they have to cycle or ramp. And nuclear plant, what you want to do is turn on and walk away and come back 18 months later and refuel it. You don't want to cycle that puppy at all. And so none of them, they cannot provide the essential re resiliency and reliability services that we need, like um, voltage support, reg up, reg down, primary frequency response, secondary frequency response, all kinds of stuff. Coal and nuclear plants just are not good at anything but spinning reserve and um, local voltage support. They can't do black start. They can't do anything except generate electricity that was once cheap and now ain't so cheap relative to the other stuff. And then regulation, I got to actually DOE and, and um, I sent up a, a storyboard and I started writing and they called me in one day and they said, there's nothing in here about regulation and the horrible effects of regulation on all these plants. I said, well, it wasn't a big deal. <laughs> and, and they said, but you're biased against regulation. And I said, bring me the data. I've been in the building three or four weeks now you guys are the ones who own the issue. Prove to me, bring me all of your research about how regulation has killed these. Well, we don't have any. Then how am I supposed to do this? So, so I looked a lot into regulation, and here's what I discovered. The early days of all of the Obama administration regulations that had said, um, everybody said the sky is falling, we're going to have to fix all these plants simultaneously. The world will fall apart as we know it. Um, not so much. It turns out that when people have to actually do a job, they find cheaper ways to do it. Many of the sites that you see from the coal industry today about how expensive it is to fix these plants were published before, like 19, 2014. Try 2014 or so, 2013, from the sky is falling before it happens stage and EIA analysis has indicated that in fact um, significantly fewer plants had to close and a lot of that modifications for these regs were done faster and cheaper instead of the whole disaster that people had anticipated. Uh, so I mentioned the linkage between regulation and retirements. It is this. When the administration says all of these plants closed in 2015, that proves regulation caused it. Well, the answer is these guys made a perfectly logical economic operations decision, and they said it doesn't make sense to, to spend more money on a plant that's already out of the money to, to, to retrofit. So what I'm going to do, and they decided this in like 2013, I'm going to do the Thelma and Louise strategy. I'm going to, that regulation date, that, that, the compliance deadline, is the edge of the cliff. And I'm just going to gun it and run this flat out as fast as I can and get every possible kilowatt hour I can before I have to shut it down. Boom. And go out in a blaze of glory, literally. So that's why you saw all of those retirements at that deadline. It's just common sense operational strategy. Don't piss away money. And so, I guess two things. One is, 
when I said reliability, I, I took note of the, the other point that was made in the study, uh, that grid operators generally continue to assess the grid as having adequate reliability. More than adequate. We've had a, a lot of the classic reliability definitions that NERC uses are around reserve margin. And most of the regions of the country are in an oversupply situation. Even with um, renewables derated for capacity purposes, we still have a whole lot of capacity that's over the classic reliability level reserve margins across most of the country. ERCOT is just about to go under or close to that level because of the, the shocker, the retirement of three more coal plants is coming up. But, um, you know, the best cure for overcapacity is low prices. And we're getting it. So retirements happen because of low prices and then people come in and they build more. Or in this case, they figure out how to do more of the smarter stuff, which is going to be more PV, more demand response, more energy efficiency, more integration and management of customer side assets so that you do things like use the building as a battery. So with so smart demand response and integrated storage so that instead of expecting the supply side to solve the entire problem, you're starting to enlist the demand side as a partner to, to solve this. Um, and so, you know, that's the technical component of the study. Uh, as you said, then there were um, there was both a series of policy recommendations and then also areas for further study uh, that were at the end of the document. And the policy recommendations, I think, you know, first of all, the study as a whole was widely viewed as uh, I think uh, technically proficient and that it uh, and that it covered a, a wide variety of. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I think it's important to say that there were, you know, look, there were a lot of people that were concerned about when when the study was first commissioned what it was going to look like, and I think in the end people looked at the study and said, uh, "Well, this is uh, this seems to be kind of a whole, you know, ho hum kind of like." Very wonky. You, you can imagine my relief when people <laughs> called me up and said, hey, that doesn't suck. <laughs> um, and so then there were the policy recommendations and the areas for further study. Uh, and uh, you know, the policy recommendations, it seemed to me, uh, took on a lot of uh, legitimate issues. Uh, some of the things around negative pricing and market structure and competing policies that I remember at the time being asked if I thought there were any areas that, uh, that would be interesting to kind of keep an eye on over the ensuing months. And one was when you went into the uh, areas for further study, there was this line uh, that argued for exploring ways to compensate generators for desired grid attributes. Uh, and I think you could probably draw a pretty straight line between that and the NOPR that ultimately, uh, that ultimately was recommended. So I guess, uh, the two things I want to do is one, uh, maybe Greg, you could help us kind of understand or mark what, what the process is and why um, when DOE wanted to action uh, or implement some of, the, some of the items from the study or from their recommendations, I should say, in the areas for further study, how did, why did that go to FERC? Uh, what does that process look like? Uh, and then maybe help us understand a little bit uh, what does the NOPR uh, say that it's trying to do? Sure. So let me um, just start out by saying, I, I'll use an example from the Quadrennial Energy Review, which was the report that I worked on um, when I was at the Department of Energy and kind of the process for how we took the, the 
great ideas from the staff at DOE and kind of turn them into policy recommendations because I think that's a good example of how this happens. And basically, I mean, what we do is we solicit ideas from the, the analysts and the staff and the national labs of four policy recommendations. You know, we, we put together issues, we put together policy recommendations, and then we kind of feed it up through the food chain um, where the director of policy for the department looks at it and you know sorts through them. The secretary looks at things. We consult with the White House. We consult with EPA. We consult with other agencies. Um, now, FERC and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission are independent, and so there's a different relationship there. But one of the authorities that the Secretary of Energy has is the ability to put something on the FERC schedule. Um, and um, Allison, you can kind Although, of clarify on that, but no, no prior secretary had ever used that yeah, authority. It had never been done before. Um, we had talked about doing it, but it never, it never rose to the level of needing to do that um, while I was at the department. But it, it is something that exists out there that the Department of Energy lawyers know about and have looked at um, over time, and it's, uh, but it had never been used until this year. Um, but what normally would happen is the leadership of the Department of Energy would talk with the leadership of FERC um, in kind of the regular meetings that they would have and talk through ideas and see what's reasonable and what's kind of rational to, to kind of pass along. Um, like, no, 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 go ahead. I mean, yeah. um, and, and so I think um, when you look at reports like the Quadrennial Energy Review, um, the recommendations that, uh, that make it into a report like that are both you know, uh, evaluated on an analytical level by the staff of, of the office that's putting them together. They're talked about with the White House and the White House leadership um, who makes the energy policy, and that includes people from the Domestic Policy Council, the National Economic Council, the National Security Council, um, Office of Science and Technology Policy. And then um, you talk about it with the Office of Management and Budget because almost everything costs money to do. And so uh, whether it's a regulation that has to go through OIRA, which is the office that oversees all regulations uh, in the federal government, or it has to be put into the budget for the next year for the president's budget to send to Congress, um, it, it has to be approved by, or has to be run through the Office of Management and Budget. And so there's a long process for doing things like this. Um, and I can't speak to the uh, NOPER that um, Secretary Perry um, announced a few months ago, but um, that's kind of the traditional way that policy is made um, in the federal government, at least on energy. Yeah. Um, and so, okay, so that's kind of how it ended up um, at FERC. Um, oh, and, but the other thing is yeah. is that FERC has the ability to order industries to do things, and all DOE has is money. Yep. Right. So DOE can can issue policy statements that have limited impact, and DOE can issue grants. Which require a significant amount of political hand wringing and OMB approval. So the most effective way, so so DOE couldn't say you must do this. All the the only thing that they had to do, the only way they could make something happen was to ask FERC to to do this. Yeah, the only regulatory authority that DOE has is energy efficiency regulations, and that's relative. I mean, that didn't apply. So, and so what did uh, DOE ask FERC to do exactly? No, no, I, no, it's okay. <laughs> DOE asked for, I was nowhere near this. In fact, it, there were probably no more than four or five people within DOE who actually worked on this. And there were probably way more than that who tried to convince DOE that it was a really bad idea. 
Uh, and, and it got cooked up long after I was back in Texas cooling my heels. Uh, so DOE shipped over this NOPER that said, um, as though they had never read the DOE staff reliability report, um, coal and nuclear plants provide, and baseload plants, because they didn't read the report, um, <laughs> continue to, to retire at an appalling rate, and if we lose them, the, the, we will be losing essential pieces uh, that provide real critical reliability services and critical resiliency services to the grid. And we know that these are incredibly valuable for the grid because um, coal and nuclear plants played an important role during um, the polar vortex of 2014 when um, a bunch of gas plants stopped being able to serve, ignoring the fact that we had very carefully explained that um, as many coal and nuclear plants shut down because of, of were, were not available to serve during the polar vortex. And, and polar vortices are not, last time I checked, the only bad things that happen on the grid. Um, so, and, and by the way, in case you haven't heard about it, the Rhodium group did a really nice study that said only 0. .000, there might be another zero in there, 7% of outages on the, of actual customer outage hours experience on the grid are due to lack of fuel availability. Yeah, 0.00007. <laughs> okay, so I might have gotten the number O's right, we're not sure. It's a small number. Um, most of the, the, the bulk, huge bulk of the problems that customers actually experience for outages are due to transmission and distribution problems. And you can't do enough tree trimming to prevent them all. Believe me, I've advocated it. <laughs> um, but so what DOE said in the NOPER was, so look, the best way to protect these precious plants is to um, require, is, is that we must set up cost of service pricing regulation for power plants that have 90 days of fuel on site because they're calling this fuel security. and um, this only applies to plants that are not already cost of service regulated by a state and that um, are in a competitive wholesale centralized market. When you translate all of that, essentially what it means is coal and nuclear plants that used to be owned by utilities that got made, um, that got divested and turned into merchant plants in the fat days when coal prices were when coal and nuke were cheap and gas was expensive and before renewables ruined the party. So, so all of these made a bunch of money for about five years when they were merchant plants and then gas prices started plummeting and these guys started getting more expensive and, um, and then in printing the, the NOPER they threw in um, not just energy markets, competitive energy markets, but also capacity markets. So effectively, this applies to um, coal and nuclear plants that are merchant, that are in PJM and MISO. And um, by the way, most coal plants today only keep 45 to, to 70 days of fuel because it's, you know, it's crazy to keep a huge inventory, particularly in places like, um, by the way, during Hurricane Harvey, the coal plants in Houston got flooded and you can't burn wet coal, so we had to crank up the gas plants. So all of that fabulous on-site fuel supply didn't do us much good. Um, so 
that's what they sent over and they said and by the way you should figure out how to implement this with give us a decision on whether you're going to implement it within 60 days the administrative law and procedures act has a few things to say about the advisability of doing something that quickly did i miss anything important I don't think so. Okay. I think, uh, so. It was kind of like stepping in the way back machine, right? We're just going to like unwind all of these things that have been done for these, right. you know. Well, all I guess, and a question that I've had about it, which, uh, you know, probably doesn't have a, a technical answer, is why you wouldn't just rely on, uh, why you wouldn't turn to this process that FERC has been convening with independent system operators uh, around capacity markets. And if your goal is to essentially if your goal was to address what I, I suspect is a, is a very legitimate and important issue of, um, uh, or at least a question of, uh, should we be valuing capacity? And if, and if plants, if, if we're going to be having, uh, you know, plants run below their nameplate capacity and that's going to affect their business model, shouldn't we be figuring out, or, or is it worth, should we be figuring out some way to compensate uh, the owners of capacity to, to continue to make that available? I'm I'm going to answer, I apologize for bogarting this, y'all, but I'm going to give that two different answers. Yeah. The first question is why and why, why would they propose this? And the second question is, should this be about capacity? And my answer on why would they propose this is if you work for an administration that is making a big deal about helping coal, um, and you have a, a lot of senior staff people who don't have a significant amount of expertise either about the industry or about the administrative and policy issues that you are dealing with, I think what you do is say, heck, we'll send over something that's a, that's a Hail Mary, does all the right political stuff to help coal and nuclear, we'll be the heroes, and it's FERC's job to do the dirty work. So Perry and his team look like, you know, they're trying to, they're, they're doing all the right things for the cause. And, and if it works, great. If it doesn't work, it's someone else's fault. So I think that's just the raw political answer. Yeah. So that's, that's the first question. Your second question is, um, how do we keep capacity? And the answer, the Allison Silverstein answer is, this is no longer a game about capacity. Capacity was relevant in the days when demand was always growing and when customers only consumed and there was none of this two-way or none of this sophisticated control and it was always about another big power plant, another big transmission line. Today, and the grid moved really, really slowly and you didn't have to cycle around plants much or, or you couldn't substitute demand or behind the meter generation for, um, or demand response for, for supply. But today it is about um, energy and it's about location and it's about time and a level of precision and speed that is unprecedented. So it's no longer a capacity game and we are wasting a tremendous amount of money buying capacity, which is the wrong thing. And what we need to be buying is much more location and time-specific energy. And we need to be getting it on a technology agnostic basis. And we need to be recognizing and valuing things that promote and, and affect reliability and resiliency. A lot of stuff like voltage support is not compensated today. But there's a lot of assets that can provide it and don't because I don't get money, why should I provide it? 
we need to figure out metrics and products around um, voltage, around black start, around reg up, reg down, around um, I'm running out of steam, I apologize. So there's a whole lot of features, ramp speed, cycling. Cycling means you turn on and off, ramping means you move it up and down and how fast you do it. So we need to be having a whole lot of precision around those and we need to be figuring out what they're worth and how to pay for them. And we need to be very specific about asking for that instead of just dumb capacity. Because dumb capacity rewards things like old coal plants. Right. Thank uh, you, I apologize for the rant. No. <laughs> Um, so I guess uh, one or two more questions and then I want to uh, hear from all of you, but uh, it's a question, th th this, a, lot of, a, a lot of the evidence when we talk about uh, reliability, um, the rhodium study for example, I mean it's looking at stuff over the last four years or five years, um, and uh, you know, a lot of the, I think a lot of the, the discussion that we've had so far we're just we're drawing on the evidence of what we've seen over the last few years, and we're saying, well, you know, the, the, some of these concerns uh, don't really seem to hit the mark. I guess a, a interesting question might be, as we look to the future, um, if we do, if we take it uh, for granted that a lot of what's been driving changes in the grid have been market forces and continued uh, technological change in in the cost of PV modules. Uh, it seems like every day we see a new estimate of how fast uh, the cost for wind generation are dropping. What are some of the things that, that uh, we should be looking to, you know, four, eight, 10, 15 years from now in terms of big challenges for the grid? I mean, I think you've started to get into some of them, uh, Allison, but uh, I don't know, if Greg or Mark, if you guys have thoughts. Sure, I don't know if this is a challenge for the grid day to day, but I think there, are, you know, how quickly and to what extent are we going to be electrifying our transportation system? And to what extent is that going to require, you know, new um, sources of power? Now, I think the thing about that, though, is that it, you know, we, we read a lot about, and Allison and Greg may have views too, about how, you know, you can charge at certain times and discharge at other at other times. So again, back to kind of the IT piece of this, right? It's uh, on the one hand a huge uh, demand, but the importance of time and location, I think, are going to be really critical with the IT systems. I, I think that we have to be. Um, thoughtful and kind of more targeted, right? So in the sense of, you know, where are the EVs going to uh, be ramping up first, right? I mean, if they're more expensive, they're going to be ramping up in certain areas first. You get more of a demand in certain parts of the grid. Uh, the local distribution system is part of that. So it's, it's not just kind of what the grid can handle more generally. But we have to kind of look at a more nuanced kind of basis. But from a, and from a, I guess from a legal uh, and regulatory perspective, I would have thought, um, you know, the, you might have pointed to some of the questions around we, we hit kind of a wall in terms of the deployment of markets. Uh, and uh, like. Well, there's, I mean, from a legal pr perspective also, I mean, you're seeing other approaches being taken at states in terms of zero emission credits uh, to, uh, which have the effect in Illinois and New York of supporting uh, nuclear power plants um, for environmental attributes. And there are based upon work done at FERC, uh, which defined renewable energy credits as being a separate attribute from the energy itself, um, defined by state law. It led to the 
you know, growth of Rex. It's a little bit more nuanced than that because if there's a bundled sale, then it still falls within FERC's domain. But anyway, um, the point being that that's you know there's gonna be some interesting things kind of playing out at the regard. You know what what. The NOPER does is very important, but it'll be interesting to see kind of how the issue plays out in the context of ZEX. What makes it different is at least with the ZEX, there's an argument that the nuclear power plants are providing an environmental benefit, which I think is much harder to make for coal. Um, uh, and uh, there is a history of recognizing environmental benefits. So that's something else. Uh, does that answer? Uh, yeah, but and, and then I guess one kind of follow up to that is just you know you you when you bring up the the ZEX and kind of the nuclear uh, state level nuclear policies, it just brings me back to, do you think uh, that this that the patchwork of different policies at the state level uh, within markets is something that ultimately has to be addressed? Ultimately, has to be addressed. I mean, I, I mean, I mean you know, you know, there. The, uh, We've, we've we are, been we dancing are dancing around it for a long time. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yes, it should be addressed. I think that uh, you have a lot of entrenched uh, interests uh, in terms of the utility, you know, the, the relationship between the utilities and the public service commissions, the politics of the public service commissions. Uh, I, I have a, uh, yeah, yes, it needs to be addressed. Um, probably not in my lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> And I think it depends on what your policy goals are. I mean, the re the reliable electricity, I mean, it, I think the markets and the, the system now takes care of that. Um, but, it, you know, if on a longer, you know, you ask 10, 15 years, you know, we uh, as a country and as a planet have to decarbonize, um, especially starting with the electricity sector, the patchwork of state policies and state regulations isn't going to do that. It's working now for shallow decarbonization. We're two-thirds of the way to what the clean power plan would have done by 2030. We'll probably hit that in the early to mid-2020s. Uh, but if we're going to get to deep decarbonization, which a lot of people think we need to get to 80% carbon reductions by 2050 or, or to zero by 2100, then you've got to get the electricity sector down to zero sooner. Um, and I don't think that state level policy or local policy is going to get us there. I think there has to be some kind of federal policy, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's a regulation or whether it's a fee or a tax or something like that. Uh, I think that puts us right at time. Um, it's been an excellent discussion. I think um, not, not uh, entirely what I expected. I assume, <laughs> I think probably Rick Perry didn't know uh, what hit him when the, <laughs> when the whole discussion got Thank started. Thank goodness. Um, I was going to say, battle between two Texans. <laughs> uh, please join me in thanking our panel. That's all for today. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts and including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu. I'm Jeff McMahon. Thanks for tuning in.